This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. You heard it. Leadership in action. That is us. Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein, director of the Center for Leadership and Change and faculty director at the McNulty Leadership Program. And I'm here with the deputy director of that program and my friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall. Uh, our third host, Jeff Klein, is off for the evening. But before we really get going, Ann, I just have a quick question. How are you? Oh, I'm great, Mike. How are you tonight? Uh, that is, I, I'm doing good. So you're yeah. good, I'm good, we're both good. Yeah, no, I'm just really elated at this time of year and just some wonderful oh, indeed. events and the semester comes to a crescendo of a conclusion. Well, I'm going to ask you a related question in just a second, but I do need to report to our listeners that we've got an extremely interesting guest tonight. The former Verizon Chief Executive Officer, uh, Officer Ivan Seidenberg, has got a new book coming out called Verizon Untethered. And, of course, it's about one of the great remakes of uh, certainly a telephone company, but it's one of the great remakes of just about any company, uh, large company in uh, recent years. So we're going to be talking with him, uh, an insider's view of what it took to uh, restructure the original regional bell operating companies, all those spinoffs from AT&T into what Verizon has become now. But, uh, and before we do that, just yeah. a quick question for you. I know you just came from an extremely interesting presentation about another new book, in this case by Melinda Gates, and I believe you heard her speak about her book. So yes, I did. What did you pick up of interest to our Leadership in Action listeners? Well, first, Mike, I have to say that, you know, it's really such a privilege to be on a university campus like Penn and have the sort of opportunities we have as just ordinary people (laughs) and students, faculty, and staff. So today, the McNulty Leadership Program sponsored an event that is part of an author's series called Authors at Wharton. Mm. And it was really inspired by a colleague of ours, mm. uh, Adam Grant, who's been on the show a time or two, a uh, well-celebrated mm. uh, author and educator. And Adam inter- interviewed Melinda about her newest book, which is about um, her philanthropy, her life, Uh, her marriage, Mm. her children, and uh, most of all, her dedication to elevating and lifting up uh, the women, women Mm. in the world. Mm. So it was very inspiring. And I I just will say one of the, for me, one of the most inspiring moments was when Mm. she recounted a moment when she and her husband, Bill Gates, were walking uh, on a beach uh, during a vacation and at that time committed to making sure that all of the uh, wealth that they received by way of Microsoft would go back to society. That was a consequential walk. It was. It was a consequential walk (laughs) and, uh, you know, much, much to be appreciated. Fantastic. Well, good to hear about that. Maybe at some later point, Willie, will talk about the book at more length on the program. Yeah, maybe Melinda will join us on well, Leadership we, in Action. You never try, know. <laughs> we will try for that. Uh, fantastic. Well, thank you, Annette. And at this point, I would like to bring Ivan Seidenberg into our conversation. Ivan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Mike and Ann. Thank you very much. Ivan, it's really great to have you here. We've worked with you before in what we call the CEO Academy, which is an annual program that we present with a person named Dennis Carey, who you know well, and Ram Sharan, who you know well. You've been one of our, quote, faculty instructors there for new CEOs who are taking office. So great to have you there and really great to have you with us tonight, especially, Ivan, about your new book, Verizon Untethered. Ivan, I'm going to start by just taking us back in time, if you wouldn't mind, and let's create the world of um, probably about 15 years ago, if I got my math right here on on (laughs) yardage or yearage, when uh, AT&T... Uh, broke itself up into, as I recall, eight regional Bell operating companies. You were there at that moment. So if you could recreate that moment, that era, and some of the rather daunting challenges you all were looking at, 
when telecom was kind of being turned on its head. So, Ivan, over to you. Okay, so believe it or not, that was in 1984. Well, okay, how about (laughs) almost 25 years? And actually, that started even before that. But but briefly, the way to think about all of this is we had um, one company, AT&T, which was made up of, of course, AT&T and all of the then Bell Operating Companies. Um, And we came to a point in time where two things were pretty obvious. The technology was continuing to create alternatives so that um, AT&T didn't own or nor should it have owned all the new technologies that people were beginning to develop that would allow for choice and competition in the communications market. And the government decided that trying to regulate one company in light of the potential that existed for uh, many, many new entrants to come into the market required that the government change its model, and therefore came the 1984 consent decree, which broke AT&T up into, at that time, eight companies, uh, the original AT&T and then seven regional Bell operating companies. Um, so that's the, so the, the premise for the breakup was basically technology kept changing the market, and consumers were looking for more choice, and one company could not possibly keep up with all the things that were going on, and the government decided that it needed to uh, change its, its model for regulating it. Now, once we were broken up, um, what we found was, uh, this is, and I discussed this a little bit in the book, but we were broken up according to an antitrust model, meaning that the AT&T was broken up according to the way antitrust law would restructure an industry. So it created seven regional telephone companies and one AT&T. And what we found almost from the very beginning of that process is the market was different than the way the government decided Hmm. to break up the companies. So almost from the very beginning, um, there was a tension between trying to run eight new companies according to the an antitrust model, as opposed to trying to run eight companies according to what the consumers wanted and what technology was driving. So within 10 years, from 1984 to 1994, we began to see the uh, reconsolidation of the industry, not just among the broken apart AT&T, but other companies uh, that were in the market, like you know MCI and Sprint, and Metro Media, and Macaw, and all these cellular companies. So we began to see the creation of an industry definition that recombined certain assets and and companies, Mike, but did it in a way that was different. And uh, here we are, we we approached the 90s, and there was a very big wave of consolidation that occurred in the 90s, of which the predecessor companies to Verizon participated in. But it was all driven by the fact that none of us were serving customers very well, and none of us were deploying technology in a way that made a lot of sense. And so that's a brief description. Let me stop for a second and give you a chance to maybe ask a question or two. But but in my mind, um, no one did anything wrong. Um, Everybody acted based on the information they had at the time. But what we found was a government-led consent decree was really not the prescription for creating value in an industry that was being disrupted by technology and consumer choice. Mike, can I ask a question? Yeah, um, if I may. And so nice in. to speak with you, Ivan. I'm mm-hmm. the one who's the least educated on this, so with the most to learn. But uh, wasn't isn't, help me understand, wasn't that in part the government's point? In other words, to break up the company into component parts, was the government agnostic about how those companies might reconfigure at a later date? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, my opinion would be when the government broke up the, the AT&T, it really believed that the industry would be best served by lots of little companies. Mm-hmm. It never really understood that in an industry like ours where capital formation is very important, 
well, you need a lot of capital to build networks and you need a lot of capital to invest in research, that the companies would reconsolidate in a form that they hadn't anticipated. Okay. So, um, I, again, I don't think the government knew that or did anything wrong. Right. There, there could have been other ways to break up AT&T. It, it could have broken it up into three fully integrated companies that were all little AT&Ts. But, no, it chose to separate by line of business, Okay. you know, local and long distance, for example. And that was based on, in my judgment, antitrust law rather than on a market-based solution to it. Okay, thank you. And, Ivan, to stay on this uh, early moment, and by the way, to correct what I said before, I said 25 years, this really was 35 years back, that these amazing uh, developments are right in front of you. And since our program here is really focused on how people like you shape the world around you and the world that affects us, I wonder if we could talk for a few minutes about, uh, I think your boss at the time, or maybe it was a layer up, Charles Brown, Charlie Brown, as he was known, <laughs> who was the chief executive of AT&T at the time. I wonder if you could just capture in a few words his style, his thinking, and the role he played in the divestiture. Well, you think about it. He, he um, you know, in the book, mm-hmm. I talk about one anecdote that I had with Charlie mm-hmm. Brown. Um, I, I obviously was way buried in the organization, and he was the chairman of the board. But uh, the, the thing that I thought was extraordinary is that he had the courage to recognize that he had to basically turn the corner on a 100-year-old industry and do something different. And so um, he was willing to in, engage with the government and create a consent decree that broke up AT&T and move forward and allowed... Um, the new entities to pursue whatever strategies they thought were important. I think in hindsight, when I look back, I think that was a very courageous decision, but it also uh, turned out to be the wrong model. Um, and uh, Because you couldn't dictate industry lines of business by saying some companies will be in long distance, some companies will be in mm-hmm. local, some companies will be in cable, some companies will be in satellite. Hmm. And so all these things, here we are 30 years later, and they're beginning to merge. And they probably were, it's the seeds of that integration were occurring probably 20, 30 years ago. Um, but here's the point, though. The market is a much more powerful regulator hmm. of industries than any government regulation could ever think it could be. Mm. Ivan, Ann, again, thank you. Are uh, Am I hearing that a suggestion that maybe we should have known? No, I think when you look back, they knew what they knew. Okay. Which was, AT&T was too big. They were perceived mm. to be crushing new entrants. They were perceived not to be investing in new technology. So they they took one company and broke it up into eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably not wrong. Um, my guess is. Um, if you look at the history of Verizon, if I can bring us back to, Please, to, yeah. to Verizon, uh, I think we could have accelerated the creation of companies like Verizon quicker and sooner and probably not had all the destruction that we had in the 80s and 90s and, and in the early 2000s to do that. But um, it's easy for me to say that, and it's probably somewhat unfair for me to sit mm-hmm. on my, my, the ledge of the, the, the building and, and yeah. make that observation, but... Um, as one company, I guess we get a right to make that observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ivan, you then, to carry the chronology forward a bit, as you become uh, involved in 9X and New England Bell and then what becomes Verizon, uh, I know from, I just knew, but also it's wonderfully described in your book that you were there, in a sense, at that creation. So walk us through your thinking that led now to the consolidation of several of these regional Bell operating companies, Arbox for short. Uh, there was a lot of heavy lifting in that you had plenty uh, plenty of resistance, legacy thinking, employees that had been with Ma Bell okay. for decades. So, so that's a good segue here. So, so AT&T was broken up. We had all these new companies. Um, I landed with one of the regional Bell operating companies. And in the 80s, we had a pretty strong economy. So working in a phone company um, was pretty good because uh, the economy was doing well. Uh, housing starts were good. 
uh, population was growing. So, you know, phone companies were generally a, a good barometer of the economy because as the economy did well, um, the phone business did well. Um, but what was occurring during that period of time was a couple of things that were very interesting. So first, um, wireless uh, took hold in the mid-'80s, and wireless at the beginning was additive to the phone business, but by the time we got into the mid-'90s, it was substitutable for the phone business. We found cable companies uh, during that period were installing their own networks, and again, when they first did it, it was additive, it was a premium service, and then all of a sudden cable companies ended up with um, displacing phone lines with cable modems, and the data business was uh, being disrupted by the cable companies. So what the, the then broken up AT&T companies faced was a situation in which they had no growth. So as we ended up in the early to mid-90s, we had a, a good business, it generated generally what people would consider to be a lot of cash. Um, we were able to pay a dividend, but we virtually had no growth. And so investors were really down on the regional bulk companies, thinking they had limited futures, no capability to generate a future. Um, certainly they couldn't generate organic growth. And, and this is true. So as I was sitting at 9x with my colleagues, we said that, that in order for us to generate real growth, we would have to generate scale and then reinvest the scale economies back in growth businesses. So the first thing that many of the regional bell companies did was invest in wireless. So all of us began to expand our wireless franchises very quickly. Um, we were one of the first ones to combine our wireless uh, assets with those of Bell Atlantic and create and go from a regional to a super regional. And eventually we had the idea of creating a national wireless business. And so during the course of probably from 1990 to 1998 or so, we really scaled up our wireless business. And investors liked that because they saw wireless as a growth business. And it's interesting today, um, here we are almost 25 years later, and, and wireless seems to have hit another trough in which what do we do now to grow the wireless business, but we can get mm. to that in a minute. So what I was looking at at Verizon, uh, at uh, 9X, rather, was a situation we had no growth and we had to generate um, some, some activity. So we did two things. We invested a lot in wireless, and we were one of the first companies that began the consolidation activity across the system. So I know you know all this, it's in the mm -hmm. book, but, um, and, and I know at Wharton you've studied all this, but <clears throat> so in a short period of time between 1994 and, say, 2003 or 4, 9X combined with um, Bell Atlantic, then they combined with GTE, and then uh, the new company was Verizon. It combined with uh, Vodafone's assets, and then it bought MCI, and it bought um, Century, Altel. Um, and we probably uh, acquired and merged with big and little companies, close to 60 companies. Hey, and, I, and, and, and there was the beginning of creating a new foundational uh, player in the industry, which turned out to be Verizon. Ivan, this is uh, riveting. Yeah. I'm just going to remind our listeners, by the way, that this is Leadership in Action, Sirius XM 132. Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School. I'm Mike Usain with Thane Greenhall, and we are talking with you, Ivan Seidenberg, former chair and CEO of Verizon Communications. And we're in a discussion of his new book, Verizon Untethered, an Insider's Story of Innovation and Disruption. And uh, Ivan, let's get right back into the narrative. Anne's yeah. got a question for you on it. Yes, Ivan, in a great story. If we could just pause for a moment. You just said that um, between 1994 and 2003 or four, uh, you went through a series of acquisitions and mergers, up to 60 companies. Can you say a little bit about, just in broad brush strokes, the decision-making about an acquisition as opposed to a merger? And then I've got a follow-up question. Okay, so... Uh so the, the issue of acquisition versus merger, let's, 
let me handle that second. A second. The first thing is, I would give great um, uh, credit to both our board and our leadership team because we were willing to sit down and deal with this situation that said reality for us was that we could not fix or grow our company by ourselves. There was nothing we thought we could do that would give us the scale, the reach, and the customer base that would allow us to grow our company in a fashion that would be satisfactory to not only our shareholders, but what our customers and our employees would thought. So we had to enter into a series of ideas about that. And you know, one of the things we talk about in the book was this whole idea of a chessboard. So probably from the period 1994 through 97 and 98, we would, every board meeting, we would sit down with the board and go through what we considered to be the industry chessboard. <laughs> who would buy whom? Who could, <laughs> who could merge with what other company? What might the other people do? What would be our first choice? What would be our second choice? And they were great board meetings because, um, believe it or not, um, I, I know it's hard to believe, but we, once we did the first transaction, then Southwestern Bill did its transaction, uh, then we would do another one, and then they would do another one. And it became pretty clear that the two companies that would become industry consolidators were uh, our company and Southwestern Bell, which was run by Ed Whitaker. Almost everybody else in the industry was just waiting to be acquired. Mm-hmm. So whether it's Ameritech or it's MCI or GTE or Bell South or all of them, they were not inclined the way we saw it is to be an industry consolidator. Um, we thought we would be one, and certainly Southwestern Bell thought it would be one. And so the two of us probably gobbled up a lot of a lot of companies during that period of time. Now the decision as to who you acquire versus how you you merge. Now in our case, we didn't have a great multiple on our stock price, so we could not use our stock as a as an acquisition vehicle. So we did almost everything by cash, mm. and in a lot of cases that in order to actually consummate a deal, um, and and certainly the two big ones with 9X and Bell Atlantic, we decided to do a merger of equals because there was a very low premium paid on combining the assets of the company, so we basically combined combined them at close to market and then moved on from there. And we could talk about all that if you like. I mean, that takes, that had a lot of other risks to it, because mergers of equals sometimes don't work. Mm-hmm. So what what made us think it could work? So we could talk about that. But I think getting to your question, mm-hmm. um, the vehicle that we chose was we used cash. Yeah. We had to get, gain scale. And during that 10-year period, I would say that we reinvested close to 75% mm-hmm. of the merger synergies that we got from these transactions back into the business. And that's how we continued to grow our wireless company. And that's how we eventually invested in fiber and brought this whole idea of Fios to the market. That's great. If I may, just one follow-up. Why is it that the board thought that you and Southwest Bell would be the two players at that time? How did you have the wisdom to understand that? Well, um, that's interesting. I don't know that we had the wisdom to do it, but we had the conviction (laughs) We had the conviction that we wanted to be a player. Now, um, so we were located on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. We served the Boston to Washington corridor. So we said, why wouldn't the company that served the Boston to Washington corridor (laughs) be considered a leader in the industry? Why would we let ourselves be bought by somebody else? So I think we took a little bit of uh, a license with uh, being uh, somewhat – aggressive. Mm -hmm. Maybe some people would even think that we were um, somewhat cocky about it. But we also realized that anybody that wanted to take us out would have to have the knowledge to know how to operate in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And that's not easy. It's not easy for other companies who aren't located in that to do that. So we thought we had a natural advantage 
in terms of if we would choose to be a consolidator, um, that we would be in a place that we would be given a chance to do that. And, and I think our board understood that. Now, our board was very tough because they wanted to make sure that we weren't just empire building, right. that we could actually execute on what we were doing once we made these transactions occur. So that's another element of the process we can talk about. But I think from a board perspective, we had a natural uh, territory that we served, which very few people could touch. We had the knowledge, the local knowledge of operating in these territories. And uh, we had a bigger idea. We never ceased to stop making acquisitions. And it almost became a joke after a while. So <laughs> who are these guys going to buy tomorrow, right? And, and some people didn't like that. You know, people in government said, well, that's not a good idea. Um, but each transaction that we proposed, we completed. And we created a better company and a bigger company, and we created competition to not just um, uh, cable companies and satellite companies and wireless companies, but sure, the industry was reduced from six or eight or nine big companies to two or three or four. But those two or three or four today are, are very formidable and I think very powerful companies that, that drive technology deployment in the industry. No, very good. Thank you, Ivan. Did that help? Did yes, that, help? that was really clear, uh, and yeah. I appreciate it. Ivan, this uh, this roadmap, extremely interesting, and um, I need to report to our listeners that we're going to take <laughs> a very short break. We want you to stay with us. Just a reminder, I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and we are talking with Ivan Seidenberg about his new book, Verizon Untethered. And Ivan, as we come back onto the air in just a couple minutes, um, we're going to take this in a in the uh, for lack of a better word, in the personal direction, uh, as uh, focusing in on you and your leadership of all that we've been talking about. So stay tuned, everybody. This is Leadership in Action. We're going to be back. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Ann Greenhall. Welcome back. Leadership in Action. That is us. We're on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm with Ann Greenhall, and I'm your host, Mike Yuseem. We're both with the McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. And we've been in a discussion, an extremely interesting one, with the CEO of Verizon Communications, Ivan Seidenberg. And we've been drawing on his new book, Verizon Untethered, an insider's story of innovation and disruption. And Ivan, great to have you back. I do want to encourage people to call in if they've got a question. 844-942-7866 is the way to reach us. And Ivan, um, we're going to, as I said, just before the break begin now to ask you to think about your role as the chief executive in this incredibly tumultuous period. And we want to draw a few ideas out that listeners uh, may themselves want to uh, think about for the, for themselves on how to lead through disruption and change. So thinking about um, the start of this kind of period of, of um, very aggressive merging and acquiring that you just described with Anne, um, my opening question is, how did you discipline yourself to think ahead and anticipate where the industry was going in ways that others probably were not quite so sensitive about or aware of? Thus, you got kind of a head start. You became the acquirer and not the acquiree. <laughs> and I'm interested in particular here if you had a, a confidant, a, a coach, a guru – Love to hear more about the role of the board. Love to hear more about uh, losing sleep at night and all of the above. <laughs> so, Ivan, over to you on all the, all that. Yeah. So you know this. You know it's very interesting. There's no one key to the universe here. So I, if I if I sound like I, I I'm rewriting history and <laughs> I can give you the one key to the universe here, I I'm probably overstating the case. But I was very fortunate because um, first of all. I had a senior team who was spectacular. So I had four or five people that were industry icons um, in different parts of our business, whether they be network experts or wireless experts 
um, or consumer uh, experts. And so the one thing that we constantly talked about um, in the 90s was our loss of market share. It drove us crazy <laughs> to get up every day and have to report to the board and report to the Wall Street that we were generating cash, we were cutting our expenses, we were meeting our earnings targets, but fundamentally our business was getting smaller. So if there was one lesson in looking back, we just refused to accept the idea that over time we were going to lose market share. And and if you think about those days, um, I mean, just think about this. The long-distance companies would be losing share every month, and they would be cutting prices every month. And sure, they were doing okay financially, but they were basically eating their own tail and and basically taking themselves and putting themselves out of business. Um, the cable companies were were stealing all our customers because they had cable modems and they were replacing at the time our DSL. Um, and then by the time the mid '90s came around, we started to see uh, companies like AOL and uh, some of the internet service providers begin offering substitutable services to things that we used to offer um, on our phone lines. So our phone lines were getting progressively simpler and dumber mm-hmm. to to the extent they were just nothing more than a, than a pipe, and all the value-added activity that goes on top of it was going to somebody else. So we were facing a situation that if we didn't do something drastically different, all we were going to do was manage ourselves out of business. And, you know, one good example of that would be Yellow Pages. Yellow Pages yeah. was like the greatest secret in the history of the industry for 80 years. You know, it was a business. You, you published your books every year. It's the only game in town. It had cash flow margins of 60%. And it was the surest thing that you could ever find in any business. And then the Internet came along, and all of a sudden people weren't using the Yellow Pages the way they were uh, used to, and they were booking stuff off on the Internet. So market share drove us to say we were going to become an investor in our networks, an investor in our business, and create and deploy capital in a way that we thought would create growth for our business. The first place we did that was wireless. Now, we couldn't build everything across the country by ourselves because the country was too big, so we did some geographic uh, mergers. We merged with uh, Bell Atlantic, so we created Bell Atlantic 9X Mobile, and then we merged with what they call PrimeCo, which was a, a joint venture of U.S. West and Ameritech and Pacific, and then we bought Altel, and then we bought licenses from the FCC as well, and then we slowly created a nationwide business. And then the culmination of that was in the year 2000, uh, 2000 we combined ourselves with the American assets of Vodafone, which, as you recall, used to be AirTouch. Mm-hmm. And then we truly had a nationwide wireless business. And so when you think about it, from 1984 to the year 2000, which was less than 20 years, we went from a local, limited, geographic, wireless carrier to a nationwide carrier. Very cool. And, uh, and we had great growth. And uh, now I can go into more about that, but I think from an investor standpoint and a board standpoint, it took the board and our senior team to be committed that each transaction we did, we had to get the synergies out. We had to find the most efficient way to run it. And in our case, one of the things that really helped us was the idea that when we did these acquisitions, we also wanted to create the best network. So there was another layer to this. Now, every company says they have the best network, um, but that's not true. So if you look at the history of Verizon and look at, no matter what surveys you look at, you know, J.D. Power or any of these, um, for the last 20 years, Verizon has just swept the awards of having the strongest mm-hmm. and best network. So what gave our board great confidence is not only were we acquiring and gaining scale, but we were creating a differentiated and distinctive asset, one that had higher quality, 
And, you know, things like drop calls and, you know, ineffective attempts. And I'm sure I'm sure you guys remember the um, now famous Can You Hear Me Now commercials. Yep. <laughs> so, so at the time, they were award-winning commercials, not because they were clever, because they actually reflected what customers thought. When they turned on their cell phones and made a call, they wanted it to work. And so we were one of the first companies that did that. Now, everybody today claims they have the best network, most powerful, best network, fastest. But <laughs> I could say this, but my, my former company, I'm now eight years removed, they continue to win all the awards. <laughs> so, so the issue is I'm very proud of them. But you could see the model here. We wanted to gain scale. We wanted to create geographic scope and scale. And then we wanted to create the best, most differentiated asset that we could. And Ivan, you made a really interesting point by way of uh, an enduring lesson here as well, that you had a great top team. You obviously had a great board. Uh, the board picked you, but you picked your team. So offer a cu- up a couple of thoughts, if you would, about how you put together the architecture, so to speak, of that top team, how you picked, how you had them work together, and so on. So again, I was lucky. Um, um, but <clears throat> with a little bit of luck comes comes a couple of choices that we made. So, so one of the things that we were very – look, I'm sure you hear this from every CEO, so I, I'm sure I'm not going to say anything other people haven't said to you. But here's what I would say, that we use the, the – uh, I think the, the, the standard about do our senior people buy into what we're trying to do? So rather than pick the most experienced person or the, the person with um, the greatest traditional results, if you look backwards, we wanted to make sure that people were buying into what we were trying to create. So in the case of wireless, we wanted to create the best network. We wanted to create the best IT. We wanted to create the best store structure. So in those days, for example, um, we tended to organically open our own stores. Um, other carriers were using, whether they were using Radio Shack or um, Best Buy or whatever, they primarily outsourced a lot of the functionality associated with running their business. If you look at the European carriers, what we noticed in those days is the European carriers would outsource everything. They would outsource their IT to IBM. They would outsource their customer care to contractors. Um, they would outsource their stores to somebody else. And they would kind of um, promote to Wall Street or their version of their investors the idea that they were very capital efficient, but yet they had crappy service and they weren't creating a differentiated product. We made dis- different decisions. We actually made different decisions. And in picking our senior team, we had to make sure that we all bought into it. And those who bought into it got rewarded and we gave them more responsibilities. And those who quite didn't think it was the right way to go, um, they, they moved on. And we were lucky because in every transaction we put together, we, we tended to pick the best people who we thought would lead us going forward. And, and once we did that with a couple of the transactions, our employees got the feeling that we were going to pick the best soldiers and the best athletes and the best leaders as opposing to pick the ones with seniority. Hmm. Very good. Ivan, I'm going to pick up on that. So your senior team, as you said, was made up of industry icons. And as I understand it, uh, people who are expert in IT or perhaps in maybe the store structure. Um, I'm interested in how you kept um, sort of a productive dialogue going in that senior team if everyone was in agreement on strategy. So here's another thing we did. Um, So one of the things I learned early on is that when you do uh, mergers and acquisitions, you could easily go into the Hall of Shame in about two minutes if you're not careful. (laughs) Okay. Because the the history is littered with good ideas that don't work out. That's true. So one of the things we did, and this is basically because of our operating background, is we took control of of every single operating metric and centralize the concept of having a standard set of metrics to run the business. Now, it took several years, probably five, until we got that all right. And we would have tons of debates about 
you know, how much should you allow the field people to control the metrics concerning customer service? How much should you allow engineers to control what is an ineffective attempt or what is a, um, a drop call metric? So we had lots of debates to make sure that we weren't allowing the silos and the functional responsibilities to run the, the company. So we had a great balance between figuring out how to look at things horizontally, but also allowing the individuality that occurred in the units. Now, to me, this is a core company that takes many, many years to develop. Mm-hmm. Not every company could do this. Um, when we looked out in our industry, we didn't see anybody who was good at it. When we looked at other industries, you could certainly say that Walmart's good at it, Amazon's good at it. You could see companies that understand what metrics drive value in customer behavior. And so we came up with certain metrics that we became sort of sacrosanct to us. Um, and we used to get laughed at by Wall Street and by our competitors. But So I'll, I'll give you an example. So we focused on churn. We said we want to be the industry leader in churn, meaning we want the fewest customers switching off our network. <laughs> that's what I was hoping you meant. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. That's what we did. And so if you looked at the profitability of Verizon Wireless in the first 15 years of its existence, almost all of it can be explained by our churn rate was probably half the churn rate of our closest competitor. Mm, and even today, when everybody's gotten better, we have churn rates under one. And when you think about it, <laughs> if you have a churn rate of dot eight, probably dot six of your churn rate is forced churn because customers mm-hmm. don't pay their bill. You get rid of them, right? So we have very few customers churning off our business every month. Now, how do you make that happen? You have to have great service. You have to have outreach programs. You have to uh, have great offers. And you have to constantly work with your customers to make sure that you're addressing the things they're looking for. Um, and so churn was one of the things that we thought was really important. And it can, he- can you hear me now? One of the things <laughs> that was a basis for good churn was ineffective attempts and drop calls. So we said, we're going to drop these numbers as low as we can get them. And we would have people driving around the country <laughs> measuring our stuff, but we would also measure our competitors. And we knew what they were doing. And so we developed a rigorous operating culture driven by metrics that um, permeated the entire organization. And, and um, my successor, Lowell McAdam, was a master at this. And, and, and he learned from Danny Striegel, who ran the wireless business for many years. But Lowell was probably the most sophisticated process leader I've ever seen. Because he would dig into every single uh, process and function in the company, and we would get people organized around how do we serve the customer better, how do we take unnecessary cost out, and how do we grow value. And um, everybody says they do it, but the truth of the matter is if you look at the results of Verizon over the last 20 years, um, there is no doubt that our operating metrics lead the world in terms of wireless franchises. Mm-hmm. Ivan, I'm going to break in and just remind our readers that they are listening to uh, Sirius XM Radio, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, Channel 132. And we're in an active discussion with you, Ivan Seidenberg, former CEO of Verizon Communications, author of a new book, Verizon Untethered, an insider's story of innovation and disruption. And Ivan, with just a couple minutes to go, I've got, a uh, again, a more personal question that is – about your role in building through a period that required very long-term thinking and long-term planning. And I know separately you give a lot of thought to that because you serve on the board of BlackRock, the the great investment company, uh, whose chief executive there, who you know well, Larry Fink, has been campaigning now along with Vanguard CEO and several others for companies to think beyond the quarter and even beyond the year and for listeners that are, are concerned about <laughs> you've got to make you got to make your results of course but also building for the future what would be a couple ideas or a couple lessons so to speak that you might pass on to them okay so that's a great point and and Larry Fink by the way is an extraordinary um, 
leader in their company. And what a story BlackRock is, obviously. Hmm. Uh, so here's what I would say. I learned a long time ago that when uh, you're put in a position of leadership, um, you don't get to make choices. You have to do both. So the greatest companies do both. And what I mean by that is you can't show up one day and say, gee, we're going to have three bad years because the market's very difficult and we want you to give us a break. And, oh, by the way, we've got a great long-term plan. All right. So I learned a long time ago that um, you have to do both. And uh, it doesn't mean every year is going to be a great year, but every quarter we have people that drove hard to do the best we could at generating sales and value and margin and revenues for the quarter we had. And we also made sure we made investments for the long term. And uh, we did that every quarter. And we would run the business not by exclusively – I've watched a lot of companies, and almost every meeting becomes a budget meeting. <laughs> okay. Um, and I, I see that even in nonprofits. Every meeting turns into can we afford it in the current budget. Well, we used to do is we used to say, okay, we're going to have a budget meeting every month. But every other meeting is not a budget meeting. So what are we going to do to invest long-term? What are we going to do to change the stores? What are we going to do to acquire something that we need? And we would have these conversations, and we would build a mentality that we were all for growth. So we placed Hmm. earnings and growth on an equal pedestal. And our board knew that, and it was tough. And sometimes we had to cut out doing things that we liked because we couldn't afford them. But the fact is, we never, ever sacrificed what we thought was important for growth. And, you know, one of the things about your followers here, you know, people who want to be good leaders, what what I learned early on is that um, people like a visible CEO. They like uh, when the CEO gets quoted, and they like when the company does well. Um, But most employees look to the CEO to predict and manage the future. Because most employees get up every day, and they do their job. And they go, okay, I'm doing my job. Now, what are you doing to make sure that we have a job in three or four years? And um, so I quickly learned that they looked to me to get most of the things right when we looked ahead. Now, in our industry, uh, we, got, we got lucky. So, you know, we can go from 3G wireless to 4G wireless. Um, we didn't talk much about this on this call, but then we decided to invest in fiber. And most of the people in our industry would say, well, fiber is a good idea. It's very expensive, but that's a good idea. And so when employees see that we're willing to take bets on the future, they're willing to go through a wall. Hmm. And I think and, – and, and if it turns out to be mostly right, then it's really cool. And, you know, you take a look at Disney. I mean, I, I love to watch them. Um, they do all these things right. And now they're going to make another turn. And their CEO gets a lot of leeway to make that, that change because of his past success in doing that. Um, the other company I used to look at a lot because I just used to find it kind of hysterical is FedEx. You know, I, I, um, this guy's been running the company for 40 years, right? He started it with one airplane. Um, he's built this enormous business. Uh, he doesn't have a complicated product set. But uh, yet, he's created a franchise globally that delivers stuff, um, and it's kind of hysterical, right? Um, so I love it. And, and every couple of years, they, they sort of lay on another uh, goal here. So um, I, I kind of like these old guard industrial companies to find a way to keep reinventing themselves. And, and just to conclude, um, I, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on this call, because if you look at – I'm retired eight years already – um, I'm two CEOs removed from when I left, and yet here we are. Um, we've gone from when I was there, 2G to 3G to 4G, and now we're looking at 5G. Right. Totally. Okay? And, and, and 5G isn't just an engineering term. It's, it's a platform for more growth than anybody could ever imagine. Yep. So it's kind of cool, right? Mm. Ivan, that's a great note to end on. Uh, Mm. (laughs) There's one more future out there at least uh, (laughs) that that we're all going to be seeing very soon. Really want to thank you for joining us. This has been extremely instructive. And 
If yeah. listeners have an interest in uh, finding your book, I think it's due out on May 1st, but it's probably already on Amazon and elsewhere. Am I right on that? Yep. Fantastic. And to find out more about you, any any way they might do that besides the book? Well, you know, uh, no, because, <laughs> okay. because the truth of the matter is, uh, in writing this book, if I could just make one more comment. Sure. I wanted this to be a story about the journey of the company. There's a little bit of personal stuff in there about many of our senior team, but this isn't a story about a, about a person. This is a story about people who made up an institution. And uh, and one of the things I really feel good about is when you people who choose to read the book – there's a whole chapter on operational excellence. There's a whole chapter on strategy. And there's a great chapter on 9-11, mm. which Indeed. really puts all the things we are talking about to work, yeah. about serving a higher purpose and having the kind of uh, competence that people need to make sure that you deliver for your customers what they're looking for. All right, Ivan, thank you on that. Just to repeat the title, Verizon Untethered. Thank you very much, Ivan. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Mike. Okay, and so we've got oh. about a minute here to do our after-action review. Uh, just maybe uh, one point from each of us to kind of sum up and pull out the main thoughts that people may want to themselves hang on to. Everybody should have their own as well. Well, how about this one, Mike? I think a practical point for all of us, no matter how small or how large the organization is um, that we are in, I really appreciated Ivan's comment about short-term and long-term and how each meeting can turn into a budget meeting. So there's that tension between short-term earnings and then long-term growth. And to, you know, have that discipline to have the budget meeting, but the next meeting, put the budget aside and talk about the long term. All right. Memo to, memo to self, memo number to one. Memo to self, yes. <laughs> talk budget, but then get beyond budget. And right. in particular, think short and long term. Second point uh, from this evening's discussion, which is to make certain you just got a great team. Yes. Uh, and what means great, what meant great for, for Ivan at Verizon is to have people who were obviously technically extremely knowledgeable, but they also bought into the agenda to the on where, vision. The, right. where, where the company was going. Last point, third point on tonight's uh, memo is to be very mindful of what really creates value, what really drives behaviors. So, yeah. I right, might, may I add just one little extra here, Mike, that vision agreement on the vision, but having that healthy debate uh, and in, in Verizon's case on the metrics, what are we going to use to measure um, our success. Great point to end on, Anne. Thank you on that. Uh, thank you, listeners, for being part of our show tonight. We've enjoyed talking with Ivan Seidenberg and uh, referencing all these uh, issues through the experience of um, one person, a great team he obviously had, and he did make the very good point. It's not about him. It's really about the the, the people, mm-hmm. the, the, the organization, the team. So, by the way, if you got something you want to raise with us, you know where to find us. We're at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. A couple special thanks here besides uh, to our guest, Ivan Seidenberg. We want to thank our excellent producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Jeffrey Simmons. I am Mike Usim. I'm with Ann Greenhall. You've been listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by our, our school, the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 